All right, everybody, welcome back to the Shirley Can't Be Serious podcast. We are back again to talk about two of the biggest movies of 1984. Yes, we're doing our series on 1984. And I just got to say, it may seem like we had some really great planning, but this is really just pure divine intervention that these things ended up this way. We're doing Gremlins. We're doing Ghostbusters. We had planned to do those in October. We rearranged the schedule because the new Top Gun movie fell out. And so we're like, oh, let's put this with this, which stuck it in between Huey Lewis and the News and Born in the USA and Footloose and Purple Rain and we're like wait all of these things are 1984 what an incredible year this is we're doing an entire six-part series all things that happened in 1984 and so this is how we have summer of 1984 it's gonna be fantastic last week we hope you enjoyed our sports versus Born in the USA I thought that turned out really well yep this week, we're going to talk about, really, two gigantic movies that came out on the same day. The same day. Again, we totally were like, what movie do we compare to Ghostbusters? Because Ghostbusters is iconic. And we're like, what movie do we compare to Gremlins? And we're like, oh, they're perfect. They're comedy, sci-fi. Let's do that. Released on the same day. How We didn't even know it. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, before we get going, I got a little bit of a non-humble brag, like just a regular brag. Yeah. Okay, so I was looking, and we are the number one film podcast in Brunei. In Brunei. In Brunei. In Brunei. <laughs> I don't, I, I got to say hello to all of our listeners in Brunei. Thank you for listening to us. We really appreciate that. I do not know as much about your country as I wanted to. And so I decided to look it up, looked up Brunei, sent you the information and you sent it back with the date of formation circled. And what year was it? 1984. 1984. Was that a coincidence? I think not. <laughs> so thank you, Brunei. Thank you to everybody else who's listening to us all over the world. Uh, we love you all. We've really been humbled by and overwhelmed by the amount of folks that we have taken part in this fun journey with us. So thank you very much. And without further ado, let's jump into Ghostbusters and Gremlins. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. You have ghosts of a freaking ghost, baby. You better call. Okay, since these two movies came out on the same day, I couldn't figure out which one to start with. And so, as I was going through the notes again today, I decided, let's start with the one that has the guy from Oklahoma in it. Okay. Gremlins. Yes, that's All right. right. Don't ever feed him after midnight. Mr. Hoyt Axton is from Oklahoma. We'll get into uh, all of that fun history a little bit later on in the episode, but let's begin with Gremlins. Okay, so before we get into the plot and different details and tidbits and stuff like that, Gremlins and Ghostbusters were both released June 8th, 1984. I was shocked. I know that uh, Steven Spielberg produced Gremlins. Yep. Joe Dante directed it. Yep. And Chris Columbus was the writer. These are three heavy hitters. Yeah, well, they weren't at the time. Though. They weren't. Well, Spielberg, Spielberg was. Spielberg, yes, but not Joe Dante and certainly not Chris Columbus. Right. So the, the story starts with Chris Columbus. And if you don't know, Chris Columbus is the guy who directed Adventures in Babysitting, The Home Alones, the Harry Potter series. I mean, he's he's big time. I mean, yeah. yeah, he's big time. But at the time that this all started, he was a guy living in a loft apartment that was infested by mice. Just to give a little history, both his parents were factory workers, but they encouraged him in his love for film. 
And so after high school, he went on to study at NYU's film school, where he was the schoolmate of Charlie Kaufman and Alec Baldwin. Oh, okay. Talking about a couple of guys that became big hitters as well. Yeah. Although he received a scholarship, he forgot to renew it, and he was forced to take a factory job himself in order to pay for schooling. And so while on he was on his shifts, he secretly worked on this 20-page screenplay, which one of his teachers later helped him to get an agent with, and that's how ultimately he was able to get the script that I'm going to tell you about in front of Mr. Steven Spielberg. Okay. So he had a roommate. He said, you love these monster movies. Why don't you just write a monster movie? And so at the time he was living in this loft apartment that was infested by mice. And so he falls asleep with his hand hanging off of the bed and he wakes up as he feels them like scurrying across his fingers. And he's like petrified that they're going to start nibbling on his fingers. (laughs) So he decides to write this story about a house that is infested with tiny monsters. The original version of the script is much more terrifying than what we got. Mom's severed head comes rolling down the stairs. The dog gets eaten. Billy and Kate walk into a McDonald's and like all the food's still there, but all the customers are eaten. It was, it was pretty rough, Uh but he takes the name from the little creatures his dad would talk about because his, you know, his dad is a World War II era guy. So his dad would blame all of the problems with the car on these little gremlins, just like Murray in the movie, Murray Futterman does. Right. This is what his dad does. So he names these guys gremlins. Now, you may remember that there's some old Bugs Bunny cartoons that have a gremlin in it. Like, yeah, this yeah. is a reference to the old World War II thing that Murray Futterman would talk about. The, you know, the big one, WWII. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. I told you earlier, I am a lover of the old Looney Tunes. Yep. So I'm very familiar. I think it was called Falling Hair. Yep. It says here, a constant menace to pilots are the gremlins who wreck planes with their diabolical Sabotage. <laughs> this little goofy little green guy drives Bugs Bunny crazy and scares him to death and tries to crash the plane the whole time Bugs Bunny's on the plane. Yes. One of the few Bugs Bunny cartoons where Bugs Bunny is like the losing end of the cartoon the whole time. He gets right? worked over by this guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Chris Columbus, he lives in New York City at the time and he's poor as can be. And he loves going down to Chinatown to buy stuff because you can get food cheap. And he's fascinated by all the little hidden shops. And that's kind of where the okay. the intro to the movie comes from. And so while he's down there one day, he finds a Chinese dictionary and he looks up the name for devil in the Chinese dictionary. And the word is mogwai. Nice. So he completes the script. He sends it to his agent and it is rejected by about 45 different producers. <laughs> Six to eight weeks go by and his roommate comes in the room and says, um, Steven Spielberg is on the phone. Yeah, right. Okay, whatever. Yeah, you're right. right. So just like the Michael Jackson, Eddie Van Halen story, it's that, hey, you know, no, this is really... Who I is this really? This yeah. is really Steven Spielberg. So his script had ended up on Spielberg's desk in like this giant stack of scripts. And Spielberg takes it home for the weekend. And so this is where Chris Columbus looks out. He's looking over these scripts and he notices the name, not the name Gremlins, the name Chris Columbus. 
<laughs> because he's like, is this guy really? I was going to mention Columbus? that. Yeah. Yeah. It's his given name is his given name is Chris Columbus. So he's like, that's what piqued his interest to pick up the script and wow. read it over the weekend reads it. And he says this, it, it was a delightful, like a candy store full of devilish mischief. And so he's like, I want to make this movie. And that's why he's calling Chris in his tiny mouse infested home. That is a great story. I mentioned to you that I thought maybe there was a connection to the Twilight Zone movie because Joe Dante had written and directed one of the episodes shown in the Twilight Zone movie. Mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg had produced the Twilight Zone, the movie. Yes. There's the most scary impactful episode. John Lithgow part, right? John Lithgow footloose, right? Yep. And there's the gremlin on the wing of the plane. By the way, original Twilight Zone episode of that had Mr. William Shatner. Exactly. Now, Dan Aykroyd is also in Twilight Zone, the movie. Yes, he is. Connection to you Ghostbusters. Want, you want to see something really scary? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I thought maybe that those guys saw that movie and thought, hey, let's make a movie about gremlins. So I think that Spielberg definitely had a lot of influence over how the story went. Sure. It's obviously hyper-violent, rated R movie, but Spielberg wants it to be a more family-friendly kind of movie, and so he gets him to tone down the script. Now, I've heard that Spielberg had this kind of idea of an E.T. part two where these other E.T. beings come down to Earth and it turns out they're bad aliens instead of good aliens. And so it's this kind of E.T. and Elliot against all of the bad aliens. And so I think probably what happened is he took that concept, took Chris Columbus's script with Gremlins and it's like, let's make this the story. Because Chris Columbus says... He's the one who said Gizmo should remain a regular guy. Yeah, remain the Mogwire, not turn into the Gremlin. He should remain the sweet, cute thing that we can all love throughout the movie. So he tells, he gives this idea to Chris Columbus. It does make it more family friendly. But important note here, it's really still pretty dang violent. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up because Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out May 23rd, 1984, so two weeks before Gremlins. Yeah. And there was already some of these rumblings about, do we have a PG and an R and then something in between? Right. Well, there was a big outcry. Like, after Temple of Doom and after Gremlins, parents were pretty upset. Right. I mean, you've got, spoiler alert, in the end of Gremlins, you've got, you've got, stripe melting down to a skeleton in this kind of awful bubbly mess not to mention the blender scene and the microwave scene so a lot of parents walked into pg thinking hey i can send my kid in here and not even have to be with them because pg just meant a babysitter right right and so pretty shocking i didn't see it when i was a kid well but temple of doom even temple of doom you've got a guy pulling out a heart yes and which burns burns in his hand as the guys dipped into lava that was that was a little scary. Yes, it was intense. Yes. It was intense. Yes. Um, Not to mention monkey brains and uh, eating roaches and all that stuff that's upsetting to kids. So whenever all of this starts happening, Spielberg is the one that speaks up and says, you know what? You're right. We should have a different rating that's in between PG and R. Why don't we do a PG-13 so that parents will know, hey, this isn't appropriate for little kids. Right. The kids should probably be at least a teenager before they watch this. I read the article, and it was so long ago that it was calling it PG-2. It's like the <laughs> sequel to pg <laughs> PG. Part two. Yes. pg er <laughs> It's a little PG-er than, than PG, you know. PGG. 
<laughs> so you know what the first movie was that was rated PG-13? Was it Red Dawn? They are. You got it. Red yeah. Dawn, 1984. You got it. Yes. Same year. Same year. Okay. So Spielberg then, he's got Chris Columbus reworking the script, which he rewrote the script about 10 times before they finally got right. what, what was the filming script. And so he needs now a director. As you mentioned, he had worked with Joe Dante on Twilight Zone. As far as I can tell, Spielberg's a pretty hands-off producer. So it was kind of like, he's our guy that's going to direct this episode. So do you know which episode of Twilight Zone Joe Dante did? Was it the elderly people? No. No. It's the one, remember the kid that's like has supreme oh. powers, like can do anything he wants. His sister has no mouth. Yes. That was maybe the most terrifying. It was creepy. Yeah. Right. So Joe Dante had done, this is interesting. He had done back in 78, had done the movie Piranha, which he fully says is a total ripoff. Like this was, he was back with Roger Corman then. Okay. We've talked about Roger Corman. He was, Roger Corman was the producer of all of the gorilla style, you know, let's make this movie for $10,000 and we're still going to make a hundred thousand on it. So that's a $90,000 profit, right? I mean, it's just, right. that's good math. He, the book, Roger <laughs> Corman's book is I've made a hundred movies and none of them have lost money, you know? Yeah. And, but they're all cheap. They're all movies crap. Yeah. That are knockoffs. And so Joe Dante was the one who did the, knockoff of Spielberg's Jaws. Yeah. So it's interesting that later on, he's like, well, you know what? I liked the knockoff of my script. I'm going to put that guy on episode number three in the Twilight Zone, which was written by, are you ready for this? Yes. Richard Matheson. Ah. Who is the father of Christopher Matheson. Who wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Excellent. All right. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) One quick tidbit before I forget it. When you're talking about Joe Dante and Chris Columbus and Steven Spielberg, mm-hmm. Joe Dante was still in the in the process of trying to keep Steven Spielberg impressed, right? Sure. And so one of the things that he did is on the movie theater in Gremlins, uh-huh. the marquee shows two movies being played. One is yes. Watch the Skies and one is A Boy's Life. Yes. And A Boy's Life was the original working title for E.T. Right. And Watch the Skies was the original working title for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yep. And he said, the only reason I did that is because I wanted to put a smile on Steven Spielberg's face when he was watching dailies. Right. Obviously, he did a good job on Twilight Zone, but he had also, in 1981, he had done one of the two mega werewolf movies that we will be covering in October Yes. called The Howling. It was based on the novel by Gary Brander, and it had been written for the screen by John Sayles, who had been the writer on Piranha. John Sayles, who directed the Born in the USA video. Bingo. Boom! (laughs) How about that? So, and also, I just love this. So I came across this old video of Joe Dante and one of the actors and one of the actresses from Piranha talking. That was hilarious. And he's talking, and like three quarters through, he pulls out this little creature and says, this is one of the creatures that we use. He's kind of been out of shape because they're using him like Phil Tibbet did all of our creatures for Piranha, and now he's using this in Star Wars 2. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow, that, that is so cool to go back to see that. So he had directed The Howling. It did, obviously, did well. Yep. Fantastic movie. But it what it didn't make him a millionaire. Okay. He ended up directing uh, some TV series. You know about this? No. He directed some of the episodes of Police Squad precursor to the Naked Gun movie. Wow. Uh-huh. That's fantastic. You know why he didn't have any money? I heard this. Oh, no, yeah, go tell me. So the reason why he was broke 
and kind of shockingly so after the howling had done well, uh-huh. that company, the company that produced the howling, yeah, went bankrupt. Oh, yes. That's and right. so he was shorted yeah. on his salary. Yeah, I do remember hearing that. That's right. I've forgotten about that. What's interesting is he's got a huge respect for the screenwriter. And so he wants to make sure the screenwriter is there on set the whole time, which doesn't typically happen. So the way he works his way around it is he will cast the screenwriter as a part in his movie so that he can say he's on, you know, he's on set as an actor, but then he's got him there as a sounding board, as as a creative. I think it's fantastic. So anyway, he is poor, sitting in this ratty office, barely hanging on, wondering where his next job is coming from when Steven Spielberg sends him the script. And so he and his partner named Mike Fennell uh, try to figure out how to make it. Mike had also worked with Roger Corman before, but one of the first movies that he did without Corman was the movie Airplane, in which he is listed in the end credits as generally in charge of a lot of things. (laughs) That sounds like a Zucker uh, credit right there. Yeah. So Joe Dante, Mike Vanell confer on this and they decide they're going to take this horrific movie and they're going to put it in a Norman Rockwell paint. Nice. Yeah. By the way, one of the things I wanted to mention before Steven Spielberg settled on Joe Dante, yeah. one of the guys that he considered as director, yeah. Tim Burton. Yeah, I heard about that. But Burton hadn't done any full feature film at that point. And so, no, yep. sir. Nope. Sorry. The beauty of what Joe Dante has done here is this kind of juxtaposing of things. I mean, you've got comedy and horror putting all of these devils inside of American. It's like the 1950s, right? Yeah. It's like November 1955. <laughs> November 5th, 1955. <laughs> Which, when you watch Gremlins and yep. you look around and you see that town square, if oh, yeah. you don't recognize it, you need to go watch Back to the Future right now. Exactly. I mean, that was the first thing when I sat down to rewatch this again. I don't think I had ever seen the beginning part of the movie. Like I'd always, it was always like when it was on, I'd try to watch it, but I never sat down and watched Gremlins from beginning to end until we started to do this. But when that first scene started and she's walking through the town, I'm like, I recognize this town. Yeah. And when I, when I, you know, went back and looked again, I'm like, oh, there's the clock tower. There's the freaking clock tower right there. Yeah. It's like seeing my hometown. I'm like, hey, that's back to the future. (laughs) That's Hill Valley. <laughs> Hill Valley, right. <laughs> okay, we ready to talk about Ghostbusters origin stories? Let's talk about Ghostbusters origin stories. For whatever reasons, Ray, call it fate, call it luck, call it karma. I believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that we were destined to get thrown out of this dump. For what purpose? To go into business for ourselves. We're ready to believe you. So Dan Aykroyd had started on the script for this one back in late 1981, and it was supposed to be a project for him and John Belushi and Eddie Murphy. Can we just sit and think about the movie that could have been that alternate universe where a movie Starring Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, and Eddie Murphy as Ghostbusters? Yeah. When I first heard about Eddie Murphy, what I had heard was that he was supposed to be in the the Winston Zedmore part. It wasn't that, it turns out. He had imagined him from the beginning. It was just supposed to be only three Ghostbusters, and it was entirely different. It would have been, uh, they were traveling through different times and dimensions. It took place in the future. It was a completely different script. It was a huge, huge story. 
In fact, they said that if they would have shot the script as it was from Dan Aykroyd, it cost like $300 million dollars. In 1984, money, which is outrageous. I mean, a ton of money. Yeah. So then, tragically, as he's writing a line of dialogue for John Belushi, he gets a call from a friend who says John's gone. So he's passed away. It obviously costs way too much money to do the script the way that he's written it. And so once he talks to Ivan Reitman about it, they have a meeting and it becomes a completely different script. But let's talk a little bit about how Aykroyd came up with the idea in the first place. Yes, let's do it. Okay. Dan Aykroyd had grown up like in a family of mediums and seance parlor type of folks. Like his grandfather was a guy who had talked to people about maybe making a radio with crystals that could communicate with the dead. I mean, it was it was a big thing in his family. And if you listen to him talk about it, this is an incredibly intelligent guy who fully thinks that if we devoted more true scientific thought to the afterlife and communicating with the afterlife, that we could actually arrive with something. So he's got that background, right? And then he starts thinking about all of those old ghosts, like the Abbott and Costello movies from the 40s and 50s. And he's like, what if I kind of took those things and put them together, took the much deeper and more factually based stuff and combines it with that silliness of going out and catching ghosts. So just like Gremlins, the script here was much darker much more about the underworld, although Stay Puft Marshmallow Man was in the original script. Yep. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. You know who else was in the original script? Who? Moogly. Moogly? Yes. Do you know who Moogly is? Slimer? No. Moogly is the logo, the ghost with the circle and the slash. Nice. He's got his name. He's got a name, and his name is Moogly, and that... That logo was already in Dan Aykroyd's original script. That is one of the most iconic features of the whole thing. Did you have a button? Did you have a like a no ghosts button when you were a kid? I had a shirt. Yeah. That had the uh, the ghost with the slash through it. I had the I had a button like a pin, you know, button. Yeah. That had the ghost the slash through it that was covered in slime, and it said I've been slime. Nice. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I had it on my jean jacket that I had gotten after I'd seen Back to the Future. <laughs> Okay, so Stay Puff Man appeared like 34 pages in. He wasn't the end of the movie. Like I said, the Ghostbusters were traveling through multiple times and dimensions, and he's diving into his upbringing with these mediums and spiritualists, and he goes really deep. So his dad, Peter Aykroyd, actually has a book called A History of Ghosts, and he describes his childhood as a family seance parlor. His grandfather... Dr. Samuel Aykroyd actually worked with Samuel Morris on the possibility of creating a telegraph that would use vibrating crystals that could communicate with the dead. A radio for speaking to God. (laughs) (laughs) So he's got this script and Ivan Reitman takes a look at it and he's like, you know what? Uh, Let's have lunch. (laughs) They go to a deli. He's like, okay, we can't make this script. Right. How about this? How about it's a going into business for ourselves kind of script? And he talks to him about the idea, right? Yeah. And then he's like, and maybe we bring over Harold and have him help out with the rewriting of the script. Ivan Reitman now, he's got, he's like, got Dan Aykroyd's idea. He knows Aykroyd's willing to work around with it. So he has to make a pitch to Columbia to get the movie made. So he doesn't pitch Dan's script. He pitches the storyline as he's envisioned it. But 
He doesn't have the script yet. And so Frank Price from Columbia says, okay, seems interesting. How much to make it? And Ivan Reitman says, I had no idea. So I thought, okay, the one successful movie that I've done so far is Stripes and it costs 10 million. So this will be three of those. So 30 million. That's what he (laughs) says. And and he says, and then Frank Price says, okay, uh, we'll do it. Just need you to have it released by June of 84. Well, this was May of 1983. Ivan Reitman hangs up the phone and he's thinking, yeah, they said yes. And then he's thinking, oh, crap, we only have 13 months to release and we don't have a script. We don't have a special effects team and we don't have all of our stars yet. Uh, Better get busy. Yeah. Okay. No special effects team. ILM is involved with this other movie that's being made at the time. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yes. Yeah. Kind of a big deal. Yeah. And consumed ILM. So they have to come up with their own special effects team. So Columbia fronts Richard Edland, who had been with ILM and who was ready to get out and do something on his own. They front him $5 million as a part of the $30 million to have him start his own special effects company, which becomes Boss Films. Throwback to Fright Night. They are the guys who, right after Ghostbusters, took all of their stuff and went over and made Fright Night. Nice. So here's some new stuff that I discovered on Richard Edland, right? Yeah. His first filmmaking job, he was hired as a cameraman by John Dykstra for the movie Star Wars. Nice. Yeah. So throwback to our Caddyshack episode, John Dykstra in the, you know, in addition to being like gigantic in all things. Right. At the, he was also the guy that created the gopher for Caddyshack. The dancing gopher? Okay, so, but get this, here's the, here's the deep, deep, here's the hope this blows your mind. You ready? Ready. Okay, so Richard Edlund, the guy who did all the special effects for Ghostbusters and all of the special effects for Fright Night, was married to a woman named Rita Kogan, who was the daughter of Michael Kogan, who was the founder of Tatio. And if you don't recognize that name, it's the company that did Space Invaders. Mind blown. That's, that's awesome. I mean, I mean, how that's pretty close. So go back, throw back again, throw back to our history of video games episodes. Go check that out. So you can hear the whole history of space invaders there. That is amazing. Okay. So we know that the movie is called ghostbusters. Yes. But it wasn't going to be called ghostbusters. Yeah. There were multiple names, but do you know why? Yeah. Because there was a, an old stupid seventies, <laughs> television show and cartoon called Ghostbusters. Yeah. We're the Ghostbusters. I'm Spencer. He's Tracy. I'm Paul. We're the Ghostbusters. We're clever, courageous, and strong. The Ghostbusters, 1970s children's show that was owned by Universal. Remember, Columbia is the one that's trying to do it. And they keep trying to get the rights from Universal and Universal says no. Right. I think you got a really great movie and I don't want you to have a great title. You know, we're competitors, right? Right. And so options for other names included Ghost Stoppers. Ghost Breakers. Yes. Ghost Smashers. This is going on while they're filming, right? They still don't, they're not sure. And so that scene where the crowd is chanting, Ghostbusters, Ghost, they had to have them chant, Ghost Breakers. <laughs> and it sucked. It sucked. You know, it's like the guy, the, the second unit guy is like calling up. He's like, listen to this. And he's like, it's terrible. We have to have Ghostbusters. And so from that point on, 
They're just like, it's going to be Ghostbusters. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, what do you want? Well, as it turns out, Frank Price did have enough of Columbia. He was done with them during the filming of Ghostbusters. And he just happened to become the head of another studio called Universal. Universal. At which point he sold Columbia the title for $500,000 plus 1% of the film's profits. Nice. Good now, job. Given Hollywood's accounting practices, the film technically never made a profit, but that's just the way that that works. You can side note. Yes. 30 million or so budget for Ghostbusters. Yeah. It made $295 million. Is the second biggest movie of 1984. First movie? Okay, so here's my tie-in. You ready for this? Yeah. Okay, if you lived in 1984, it was this huge phenomenon, right? It was the gigantic movie of 1984. And for me, when I saw that it was the second biggest movie of 84, I'm like, what the crap was bigger? Right. Okay, in 1984. Right. Well... Remember the third Ghostbuster originally, Eddie Murphy? He left Ghostbusters yep. to go make this little movie called Beverly Hills Cop. Now, that didn't come out until December of 84. Right. But technically, because it was released in 84, it all adds looked up. at all of the problems. Right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So, you talk about the Ghostbusters name. Yeah. That was owned by that, that 70s show that I was telling you about. Yeah. Uh, the company was named Filmation. Yeah. Okay which you may recognize as they produced the TV show, the animated show, He-Man. Oh, yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. yeah. So at one point, the biggest opponents to Ghostbusters were Coca-Cola and (laughs) He-Man. It's an 80s battle to end all battles. (laughs) I have the power. Okay, so one of the things I wanted to mention, originally both of these movies were intended to be more adult movies. Like they were supposed to be R-rated, both of them. Yeah. And Spielberg came in and softened Gremlins. Yep. And then, you know, Ghostbusters, they, Ivan Reitman kind of softened Ghostbusters. Yep. Yeah. No, I mean, we, I wouldn't have been able to watch him as a kid. Nope. So talking about Harold Ramis, he was obviously not only just a very intelligent guy, but he was an experienced director, an experienced writer. He had also been a Second City guy. And so his improv skills were on point. So the scene, this is one of my favorites, the scene where Bill Murray, where Peter Vinkman comes into the library and Egon is listening to the table with the I laugh out loud every time I see that. And he says, there's something that's not related to this at all, but he's like, this is like that one time that you tried to drill a hole through your head. You remember that? And with, I mean, there's not a beat missed. That was an improv thing from Bill Murray without missing a beat. Harold Ramis is like, that would have worked if you hadn't stopped. <laughs> like, what? Oh, is so good, so right? So good, so good. Okay, so I say all that because I want you to know that I hold Harold Ramis in the highest regard. But I found out some really interesting stuff, completely unrelated to what we're talking about, but it's just fascinating. So in March of 83, right before all of this starts, like May is when Ivan Reitman's making the pitch to Frank Price. Right. In March of that year, Harold Ramis has a close friend named Peter Ivers, who's a fantastic musician that's been connected with a ton of stuff. Muddy Waters would call him the best harp player around. I mean, this, he, he's a significant guy. Well, he was found bludgeoned to death in his apartment. And because he had this close relationship with Harold's wife, Anne, Harold Ramis was actually a suspect in the murder for just a brief period of time, which is weird enough, right? That's weird enough. He got cleared. He had an alibi. That's fine. But then after the movie is done shooting, he takes Peter Ivers' job 
as a host of this new show that that they're developing um, has to, he tries to get Bill Murray to come in to, to host the first show. Bill Murray can't make it because Ghostbusters shooting late. So he gets Chevy Chase to come in and host the first show. Chevy Chase gets in a physical fist fight with somebody in the audience on the very first show. I mean, it's what? nuts. I'm like, this is so good. It's deserving of its own episode. But I just, I just wanted to say that was really bizarre to know that right where, when all of these things were happening, Harold <laughs> Ramos was a suspect in a murder case that has remained unsolved to this day. Okay. You brought up Chevy Chase and, yeah. and I know we're going to get into casting here in a second, but yeah. Harold Ramos and Caddyshack and, Chevy Chase, flashback to our Caddyshack episode. Right. Chevy Chase was considered for the role of Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters. Right. Okay. Chevy Chase also, Chris Columbus was going to direct Christmas Vacation, but he's like, I can't work with this jerk. Yep. Talking about Chevy Chase. Right. As far as I can tell, everyone in Hollywood hates him. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So are we, you want to go into casting? Yeah. Let's go back to Gremlins and start talking about casting. Let's go back to Gremlins. Okay. Sunlight will kill him. All right, so casting the lead of Billy yep. is Zach Galligan. When he auditioned, yes. he auditioned with Phoebe Cates. Yep. He just sat down next to her. He put his head on her shoulder, and yeah. they kind of cuddled. Yeah. And Steven Spielberg's like, look, they already love each other. Yeah. You're cast. That's it. Yeah, and he's an unknown. So they had considered some other guys, too, right? So they had considered a couple of other guys, yeah. a couple of other names that yeah. you might recognize. Emilio Estevez. Right. This is before Breakfast Club. Yeah. And Judd Nelson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Prior to Breakfast Club. Yeah. Kind of interesting. Yeah. I, I could see either one of those guys in this part, but I think they both kind of have an edgier bit about them that, that Zach doesn't have. He's he, He's got more of a kind of an angelic look about him. He's a little softer. Yeah, and he's more innocent. And he's playing a guy who's like... It's kind of like he's a 13-year-old boy, even though he's, you know, obviously in his 20s working at the bank. He's a 20-something who works at a bank, who brings his dog to work, and his best friend is like a 13-year-old kid. Yeah. Kind of weird. Yeah. But again, I think it's the morphing of the script. So the 13-year-old kid... Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman, which is one, this is one of his first movies. Friday the 13th, part four. Okay, right. So he'd done that. He'd done some commercials, but hadn't done a whole lot else. He was the voice... Fox in the Hound. In Fox and the Hound. Yeah. He was... Oh, the hound dog. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He was Copper? He's the dog. I don't I can't remember, remember. I think he yeah, was. Copper was his name for I think dog. the dog was Copper. Ultimately, he is the kid in Gremlins mm-hmm. and then goes on to work with Steven Spielberg later in The Goonies. Right. Wearing his Purple Rain shirt. Summer of 84. <laughs> Come back in a couple of weeks for that one. Right. Okay. All right. I want to talk about Phoebe Cates for a second. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just my arm. <laughs> okay, so Phoebe Cates was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Was she in that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you have, if I have to say that, you have not seen it. I'm just kidding. Yes, of course. <laughs> it's the most memorable scene of all. Of, she ruined of more videotapes with people pausing the VCR. <laughs> Does anybody knock anymore? <laughs> okay, so do you know who directed... Best times, times at Richmond High. Amy Heckerling. Right. Who had a child with Harold Ramis. That blows me away. Right. And that child, that illegitimate child, they were never married, yes. was in a movie about an illegitimate child that was directed by Amy Heckerling named Look Who's Talking. <laughs> 
Wow, how yeah. about that? We she's, are all over the place. Yeah, today. Molly Heckerling, look her up. She's she's been in stuff now. She's she's grown up now. Isn't yes. that weird that look who's talking is she, she's probably in her thirties? Oh my gosh, that's crazy. It's nuts. All right, so Phoebe Cates, when they hired her, mm-hmm. they brought her in. They were worried about her playing this sort of innocent, sweet girl next door character. Yeah, because she had gone topless in Fast Times. Yep, but she totally has the sweet, innocent look down. Okay, so uh, going back to your original kickoff thing, Hoyt Axton. Oh, yeah. Was hired as the dad. Yeah, so Hoyt Axton is from Oklahoma. He ended up leaving town because he had tried to pull this prank and end up burning down the local hardware store. <laughs> <laughs> On graduation night, right? He needed the, uh, the, the bathroom buddy to, to fire extinguisher that up. Okay, so you had written me, tried to blow my mind with some songs that he had done, which we'll talk about in a second. But we're about to blow your mind, right? Okay. And, and this is only going to be your mind. Like, except for our Oklahoma listeners, nobody else, everybody else is going to go, who? Yeah. So are you ready for this? Yes. He's first cousins with David Bourne. Get out of town. Right. So David Bourne, just for those non-Oklahoma folks out there, is president of the University of Oklahoma for the end, like, decades, including the time that Jason and I went to school there. He also was a U.S. senator and all kinds of stuff. But yeah. anyway. Wow. So, Songs that he's written, go. Joy to the World by Three Dog Night. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Was a good friend of mine. Right. Also wrote Never Been to Spain, also by Three Dog Night. Also wrote The Pusher. Also wrote The No-No Song by Ringo Starr. Wrote Della and the Dealer. And wrote Greenback Dollar. I mean, all big songs in the 60s and 70s, right? But did you know that his mother wrote a song as well. Okay. It's a little song called Heartbreak Hotel, sang by Mr. Elvis Presley. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lone Street, that heartbreak. Dude. Am I blowing your mind? You are coming up with some amazing stuff today. So Chris Columbus is excited to get on set because he wants to meet Hoyt Axton, not because of any of the songs that Hoyt Axton has written, but because he's a huge Elvis fan and he <laughs> wants to meet the guy whose mom wrote Heartbreak Hotel. And then, of course, a few years later, he goes on to direct a movie himself about Elvis called Heartbreak Hotel. That's fantastic. Starring Keith David or David Keith. I never remember which one of those guys is which. Keith David, the less dark one. <laughs> Not the guy from Something About Mary, the other guy. Yes, the okay. guy who's the bad guy in like every other movie. The guy who's the bad guy in Major League Two. That guy. Yes. Yeah. The, he's the dad in Firestarter. Yes. Another big movie, Summer of 84. Right. So Hoyt Action is cast as the father and then the mom. The mom, her name is Frances Lee McCain. Right. And I sent you her list of movies and she had a stellar three-year period right Let's there, right? talk about it. Okay, so... This is freaking amazing. You've probably not seen her in anything made before 1984 or anything made after 1985, but in a just couple-year period there, she was the mom in Footloose. Ren's mom. Ren's mom, yes. She was the mom in Gremlins. She was... Lorraine's mom in Back to the Future, and she was Gordy's mom in Stand By Me. What is it? I mean, that's, what? that's 84, 85, 86. She is the mom choice for casting if you want to make a good movie. Fantastic. I'm glad her head didn't roll down the stairs. Me too. <laughs> and you know what? Just on a side note, her character 
nearly wipes out all the gremlins. She kills oh, four or five of them. Bad A. Yes. Just tosses them in the blender, kicks them in the microwave. Yeah. She's like Rambo. Did you know that the dog in Gremlins, his name is Mushroom. I did not know that. Okay. The one that the uh, Gremlins like hang out by Christmas lights. My I mean, gosh. It's a lot better than getting eaten though. I mean, it's pretty rough. Yeah. He plays Barney. Uh-huh. He also stars as Lance Hendrickson's dog in Pumpkinhead, the movie. Who else you got? The voice of Gizmo, none other than Howie Mandel. Yes. And even in his stand-up deal, he would do My Name is Billy, maybe? He would have that character that he would do. Back when Howie Mandel still had hair and was still putting a rubber glove over the top of his head. (laughs) Right? That's right. So at that time, he was doing the voice for Gizmo. Do you know who did the voice for Stripe? No. Mr. Frank Welker, who is best known for voicing Fred in (laughs) Scooby-Doo. First thing we'd better do is split up and search the school for clues. Here's an interesting fact about Mr. Welker. He has been doing these voiceovers and other movies for decades. As of this year, he holds over 860 film, television, and video game credits, making him one of the most iconic actors of all time, but also making him the third top box office growing actor at $17.4 billion. What? The guy who's the voice for Stripe and Fred and a bajillion other things is the third highest box office gross actor in existence. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I got something for you. Okay, go. Judge Reinhold yes. is also in Gremlins. Also in Fast He's kind of the... He's, he's in Fast Time with Phoebe Cates. Doesn't anybody lock the door, right? Yes. yes. They're, they're seeing, their scene is intertwined. Yes. He plays the big manager. He's kind of a jerk. He's like 20, what is he saying? He's 23. Yeah, yeah he's, he says he's 26. He's like right? the bad guy. Yeah. yeah. He was also in Beverly Hills Cop with Eddie Murphy yep. as the largest movie in 1984. He was a hot thing there for a little bit. Yeah. He has a scene that didn't make the final cut. The gremlins are like attacking the bank uh-huh. and he locks himself in the vault and it's like he's going nuts. Like he's Literally, like, his brain has broken and he's insane. Freaks out, locks himself in the vault. Kind of a darker... Yeah. Okay, so here are some other surprises. So I told you that Dante is big about putting other movies in his movies, you know? Right. He is also big about putting actors who have been in big things in the past in his movies as well. So the guy who's walking around with the pipe... Who said, I paid for my tree to the sheriff, you know? Yeah. That's Harry Carey Jr., who is in a ton of John Ford movies, all cowboy movies. But then he also went on to be one of the three old timers in Back to the Future Part 3. Oh, nice. And he's one of the only actors that was in both Tombstone and Wyatt Earp. Oh, right. He's Marshall White in, in Tombstone. Right? Okay. Tombstone we're going to hopefully cover later on this year. Yes. So now, Mr. Wang. No offense. Wing, Mr. Wing. <laughs> Sorry. Wrong on that one. Mr. Wing, grandfather, <laughs> is a guy named Key Luke, who was number one son for the old Charlie Chan films. He was he was the yes. first son of Charlie Chan. Uh-huh. And he was the original Kato in like the early, like 39, 40, 41 of the Green Hornet series. He was oh. Kato the sidekick, right? He did the voice for Brack and Space Ghost in the 60s. But here you go. You ready? Yes. He was Master Poe in the television series Kung Fu. Take the stone from my hand, grasshopper. All right. Master Poe is the one that owns the Mogwai. Wow. Hey, you know what? We, t- we talked off air about this, but mm-hmm. the little grandson who works in the store. Yes. 
that is not the kid from Goonies, and that's not Short Round from Indiana Jones and no. Temple of Doom. But he does wear a Yankees cap in style, kind yeah. of resembling Short Round. Yes, yeah. They're dressing the Asian young yes. actors in Yankee attire. Hold on, lady. We're going for a ride. You call him Dr. Jonas Tall. <laughs> okay, so one other guy that I got to mention because I mentioned him back on our third episode on Airplane. Okay. Kenneth Toby is the guy who's the gas station attendant that he's trying to sell the smokeless ashtray to. That guy's name's Ken Toby. Okay. He was also the, he was in the original The Thing, like from the 1950s. He was in the original of that. But he's the guy in airplane on the phone that's like, he's a danger to everything in the air. Yes, birds too. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Mm, Oh, did you, here's, here's something interesting on Phoebe Cates. Keep talking. Her father was one of the creators of the $64,000 question, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Her husband is Kevin Klein, <laughs> who, like, could be her dad, I think. Like, he's old. Like, they met. She auditioned for the Meg Tilly part in The Big Chill, and they were both seeing other people at the time, but I guess, you know, Sparks met each other then. And, yeah. and a few years later, when they were both unattached, they met again and have been married since then, since, like, the late 80s. It's incredible. Kevin Klein Way of- to go, Kevin Klein. Yes, we're giving it up. His funniest role, in my opinion, Fish Called Wanda. Oh, yeah, I love it. The radio DJ is Don Steele, who is like one of the most famous radio DJs in L.A. for years and years. And then he they did this contest where it was catch, you know, catch Don Steele. And he was driving around in L.A. and like people ran over like they had a huge wreck trying to catch him and it became a huge case like a big liability case that went to the supreme court it's now a case that they study in law school yes so the radio dj ricky rialto that's dressed up like on the billboard like indiana Indiana jones Jones. yeah yeah that's that's his history (laughs) one more let's go just one more. We've yep. already talked about Bugs Bunny. But in the scene in the bar, whenever Billy is showing his artwork of Mrs. Deagle, we can't forget Mrs. Deagle. Oh, crap. How do we oh, my gosh. Okay. So we're going to talk about Mrs. Deagle in a second. But the guy who's like, oh, you've really captured her likeness. It's Mr. Chuck Jones, who directed about a million Bugs Bunny episodes. And then Mrs. Deagle. Mrs. Deagle. Mrs. Deagle. Who's a cross between, we've talked about it. It's the bank manager from It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. It's Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah. And it's, and it's the Wicked Wish of the West. Oh, for sure. I'll get your little dog too. Yeah, exactly. When she got it from the Gremlins, I was like, good riddance yeah. to her. Caleb actually cheered out loud. <laughs> He's like, yeah, she that. Yeah. Blew her out of the window. Oh, what a great scene that is. Now, who is the actress who plays her? So Mrs. Deagle is played by Polly Holiday, who you might know better as Flo from Alice's Diner. Kiss my grits. Kiss my grits. Um, excuse me, Flo. <laughs> like the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also, of course, have Jonathan Banks, who is also in 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cop and Breaking Bad. He is the deputy sheriff. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's the bad guy in Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. I want to drive. You're drunk. You always drive. I'm the sheriff. (laughs) He's the man who wrecked the buffet at the... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's flip over to Ghostbusters and talk about casting for Ghostbusters. Yep. I am the key master. I am the gatekeeper.
All right, so Dan Ackerman, obviously the rider, he was always going to be race dance. So when Ivan Ryman brought in Harold Ramis, Harold Ramis is like, yeah, I'm happy to help you write. I also think I'd be great for this Egon part. But they did have a couple other guys they were kind of fishing around with. But first, before we get there, let's talk about Peter Bank. That was the biggest hire of all. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. Right. The John Belushi replacement, right? Right. They wanted John Belushi originally. They talked about Chevy Chase. No. When Chevy Chase looked at the script, he's like, guys, this is... The script is crazy. I don't understand it. It's too weird. But so it was very different when he looked at it. Yeah. Talked about Cherry Chase. They talked about Steve Gutenberg, who went on to make Police Academy this year. Tom Hanks, yeah. Robin Williams, Michael Keaton as big. Yeah, Man. that that would have been a good that would have been a good cast. I could you see Bill, that. If you didn't get Bill Murray, Michael Keaton would have been great. Yes. All right. For Egon, before Harold Ramis came on board, they yeah. talked about Christopher Walken. <laughs> yeah. Right? He could have been a weird e- Egon. Yes. Very much more on the weird side, yes. yes. John Lithgow. Yeah, yeah. Footloose, uh, Footloose. He's doing Footloose and he had just done, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Christopher Lloyd. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And, like you said, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum. So once again, let's think about alternate universes where we have Michael Keaton, Christopher Lloyd, and Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. I am glad that none of those guys got it because I love what Harold Ramis oh, did with the character. He did it so well. Well, let's say this Twinkie represents the normal amount of psychokinetic energy in the New York area. According to this morning's sample, it would be a Twinkie 35 feet long, weighing approximately 600 pounds. <coughs> That's a big Twinkie. Did it so well. Okay, now here's something. Are you ready for this? Yes. Before they start filming, they've got to work on a script, right? So they go to Martha's Vineyard over the 4th of July weekend and Ivan and Dan and Harold, they spend like two weeks in the basement of this place in Martha's Vineyard writing this script together, high as a kite most of the time. Right. But ultimately, they end up with a structure, right? It's like a guideline, but they really don't know how it's going to end. And they're kind of making it up as they go. Now, one of the things that they don't have in that original script is a female part, right? Yeah. But once they start going on this, there's like word starts to spread. And once somebody named Sigourney Weaver hears about it, she's like, I want to be in that movie. She's freaking Ripley. Yeah, she's Ripley from Alien. So when she came in to talk to Ivan Reitman about being in the movie, she's the one that comes up with the idea. She says, you know those dogs on the roof i think i should be one of those dogs and he's like what are you talking about and she gets up on the desk gets down on all fours and starts wiggling around and all of a sudden ivan reitman thinks it's a great idea about having the lady be the dog and he has he has a great idea about the way the rest of the movie should get that that really sort of makes the movie how she becomes possessed and later becomes the dog, and they actually kind of rescue her out of the charred remains of the dog. It's really cool. Right. She's awesome. Yeah. She's awesome. Now, of course, like you said, they get Bill Murray for Peter Vinkman, but Bill Murray is notorious for never signing a contract, and you just don't know if he's going <laughs> to show up or not, right? Ivan Reitman had worked with him on Meatballs and yep. Stripes, and he knew how difficult he was. Right. And he's like, well, I we think that Bill's going to show up for the first day of shooting. Dan says he is. Yeah. Right, but we're not 
positive. So do you know the story about Razor's Edge? No, tell me the story. So, I mean, there's not a big story, but basically Bill Murray had really wanted to make this movie, The Razor's Edge, which is a straight piece form. Like it is not comedy at all. I mean, there's a little bit, but it's, it's almost weird in the movie, but he had really wanted to make this, but couldn't get anybody to go for it. And uh, I think it was Dan Aykroyd that says, why don't you use this as leverage? And he says, okay, I'll do Ghostbusters if you guys finance Razor's Edge. And I think Dan says, you should go make that movie first because they may not do it if you do Ghostbusters. Yeah, he's right. right. I mean, he's taking care of his friend, right? Yep. So he goes and does Razor's Edge. Ivan Reitman then picks him up from JFK airport about a week before the shooting was about to start. They have to do some camera testing and wardrobe testing when they get there. So like before real shooting starts, he decides to shoot some of the montage scenes with them running around New York City in their coveralls and the packs. So those scenes that you see them running through the streets, those were the very first scenes that they shot. That's really cool. We haven't talked about Ernie Hudson. What, What can you tell me about Ernie? Well, here's the deal with Ernie Hudson. So obviously when he was hired, he was filling the character that Eddie Murphy left. Right. And according to Dan Aykroyd, when Eddie Murphy left, the Venkman character became the comedic voice of the movie. Right. So it wasn't a one-to-one trade. But anyway, they brought in Ernie Hudson. He had to be the guy that the audience could relate to. They originally brought in and read Reginald Vell Johnson for the part of Winston Zeddemore. Right. Well, he's in it. He, he got the consolation prize of the prison guard, <laughs> yeah. right? And this is the first movie that we see Reginald Val Johnson as a cop in. And then he goes to do a cop and a cop and another cop. He plays a cop in Family Matters. Yep. And he plays the freaking cop Al Powell in Die Hard. Feeling pretty unappreciated, Al. <laughs> also from Die Hard, you get William Atherton. Oh, my Talk gosh. about a three-year stretch. Yeah. He plays the dead in Ghostbusters. And real genius. You can't say d- on the radio. <laughs> Nobody's listening. <laughs> it's true. This man has no dick. <laughs> and in Die Hard. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about Lewis Tully for a second. Yeah, so they, brought, they wanted John Candy, yeah. but he wanted it to play like a German. He wanted to have this accent. He always wanted to have dogs around. And they thought, man, it just, it just really wasn't what they wanted. Right. So he didn't really like the character. So anyway, he, they, they split. Yeah, he's, he was like, I really don't get this. And then there became a paycheck issue. And he's like, eh, I'm not really that interested. So literally on the same day that John Candy says no, Ivan Reitman sends a script to Rick Moranis. Who, I mean, those guys work together on SCTV, right? Yeah. They're friends. Yep. But Rick gets it. And the first thing he does is call back and say, I just want you to tell John, thank you for turning this script down because I think it's amazing and I have got the character. I know exactly how to play. Fantastic. Yeah. And he was like, Rick Moranis had an accounting background. Like he knew it. So all those little accounting foibles that he so throws good. out there are totally him improving that stuff. Do you have any Excedrin or extra strength Tylenol? Gee, I think all I got is acetylsalicylic acid generic. See, I can get 600 tablets of that for the same price as 300 of a name brand. That makes good financial sense, good advice. Hey, this is real smoked salmon from Nova Scotia, Canada, $24.95 a pound. It only cost me $14.12 after tax, though. I'm giving this whole thing as a promotional expense. That's why I invited clients instead of friends. I can't even riff on a podcast. We have to edit this whole thing. He talks nonstop for like three minutes. He's talking about, hey, it's Susie and Bob. And talk about getting the character. Like, just take a line, let me in, let me in. To take that and turn it into, let me in, let me in. And the door slams. 
That's gold. I mean, that is true brilliance in acting. And you know what? Rick Moranis was shooting up the star rocket. 1994, his wife passes away. He stops acting, goes home, takes care of his kids for the next 20 years. Totally respected. I can't. I mean, it's just amazing. It's amazing that you have that kind of dedication that you would go, I'm going to leave this thing that is making me millions of dollars. And instead, I'm going to focus on my children for the next 20 years. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Real quickly, Eddie Neeson, Gozer. They originally wanted Paul Rubens in the part of Gozer. Oh, that's right. Pee Wee Herman was almost Gozer. Pee Wee Herman. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. I also heard that uh, Grace Jones was was considered as well. I can see that. Yeah, that's a more, I mean, you still got the flat top. So, <laughs> aim for the flat top. So, we didn't mention the name of the actress that played Gozer. Gozer ultimately was played by Sladbitsa Joven, who is this Yugoslav model. I heard that her character is supposed to be a cross between David Bowie and Grace Jones. Okay, yeah. That okay. Works, yeah. But listen to this. This yeah. is the funny part. Right. When they were rehearsing the Gozer scene, so she's from Yugoslavia, so she has this strange accent. Uh-huh. So when she's saying the line, Jews and perish, right? right. It sounded like she said, Jews and berries. <laughs> <laughs> And Bill Murray kept saying, there are no Jews and berries here. (laughs) Jews and berries. So they they ended up changing her voice. It was voiced by a voice actress named Patty Edwards, who has a few films. She played Floatsam and Jetsam in The Little Mermaid. Notice the smoke-damaged voice there as well. (laughs) (laughs) Real quickly, I've got a couple of cameos I've just got to talk about. Okay. Casey Kasem has a cameo in it as he's reading the Top 40 Countdown. Just his voice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, the Ghostbusters and this and that and on with the countdown. Yeah. Okay. His wife, Jean Kasem, she plays the tall woman at the party who's dancing with Rick Moranis. Right. She's also, she plays Loretta on Cheers. Yep. If you want a really interesting story, you need to go find out the battle over Casey Kasem's body when he passes away. That's really weird. She keeps moving it from his kids. It's all this weird stuff. Weird. Anyway, Jean and Casey Kasem. Okay, I want to say this scene. You remember the scene where the reporter's like, well, I remember when my grandma used to spin yarns around like... You remember that? Yeah. Remember the guy that's in the background that looks yes. like one of the disease guys? That legit was a guy who was not an actor. <laughs> like it was a guy who was like, oh, they're making a movie. Yeah, I'll get in the movie. So now for, you know, eternity, he's in this huge blockbuster movie and he was just a guy who was just looking around. There's always an abundance of morons. Okay, but here's the one that really blew me away. Okay. The girl at the birthday party when Rick Moranis comes up and is banging on the window. Let me in, right? Yeah. Yeah. The girl at the birthday party, you don't really get a good look at her. It's the back of her head. You know who that is? Debbie Gibson. Debbie Gibson from the 80s. As in Only in My Dreams, Electric Youth, Lost in Your Eyes. Yeah, Debbie wow. Gibson. Wow. How about that? That's awesome. All right, friends, that does it for this week's episode. Please come back next week. We will continue the discussion on Gremlins and Ghostbusters. We will talk production. We will talk special effects. We will talk soundtrack. And we will talk final judgment about which of these two iconic 80s, 1984 movies is the best. It's going to be amazing. Listen, we are an independent podcast. If you can support us through Patreon, we would sure appreciate it. Go check our Facebook page. Go check out our Twitter page. Find us on Patreon as well. Yeah, we look forward to seeing you next week. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. (laughs) 